0: Hi everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I'm putting out on my Substack, which is called Decide Nothing. Today I'm talking with my friend James Brown. James and I met through the Battery here in San Francisco, where we have both served as creatives in residence and produced events together. After an early career in advertising, he became a meditation teacher 13 years ago. Since then, he's taught thousands of people to meditate and has worked with a diverse range of global companies, including Summit Series, Salesforce, TRX, and BBDO. His practice is called Vedic Path Meditation. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of this page, or at least consider just one, which is what does flow mean to you? How do you get into flow? And how is flow integrated into your everyday life? I'd love to hear from you after you listen. You can do all the things, subscribe, like, recommend, share, and most importantly, comment right at the bottom of this page. James is someone that I've learned a lot from, a man that I love and respect, and that I continue to want to get to know more deeply, all of which is why I've invited him to be with us here today. I drink beer to improve my mind In all war, help mankind Through these dark and trying times Hey, batter, butter batter, hey, butter. Flow was really one of the first things that we connected on. As a concept, really, that's mm-hmm. been very important to me in understanding what I now have come to call the spirituality of athleticism. That's how I approach flow. Of course, lots of mm-hmm. other people approach it other ways. And I guess yeah. for you, through meditation.
1: Well, it's not just through meditation. I was very interested in flow. I read Mikhail Chista Mikhail's book. Set me high. Set yeah, me high. Which <laughs> great is that he's this wonderful person, has an amazing life story, and wrote a lot. Of, but his name is the opposite of flow.
0: You just have to get into it, man. You got to go with the flow.
1: <laughs> so I was very interested in flow, and I was thinking about creating another program to complement the Vedic meditation. I was teaching at Summit Series. It's sort of like Burning Man meets Ted. Yeah. Like I've, You have some lectures, and then Malcolm Gladwell is speaking at a club at 10 o'clock at night, and then there's a roller disco party. Totally, kind of yeah, thing. yeah. And so I was listening to... These two guys had a break between talks, and they were talking about flow. Mm -hmm. And so one guy said, oh, man, it was so flow. We were in a Costa Rica, an ecstatic dance circle, and it was just total flow. And the other guy, as if waiting for the moment he was done so he could one-up him, said, oh, I totally exactly what you mean. Because we're in British Columbia, hella skiing is virgin powder, and he's literally said this phrase, He said it was flowy, flow, flow, flow.
0: (laughs) See it? I I already rolled my eyes three times. (laughs) Fuck these guys! (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like
1: they're trying to outflow each other. Yeah, and it made me realize that this concept of flow was being seized by peak experience chasers. Yeah, right. And look, I want as many peak experiences as the next guy, but I have a wife. I have two kids. Right? I'm like. Yeah. Like and 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 so I'm not gonna go ecstatic dance circling very often. And I'm not gonna go virgin Let alone hellis hellis skiing very yeah. often. And then uh, kind of knowing what I know about meditation and consciousness, I realized that if that guy Helliskiing was wondering if his girlfriend was cheating on him, he would not have been in flow. If the guy ecstatic dance circling was wondering about how his stock portfolio was doing, he wouldn't be in flow. Yeah, That flow isn't necessarily about the experience you're having. It's about the state of consciousness you're in when you're experiencing it. And I started to think that maybe what most people might benefit more from is this concept I call everyday flow, which is these little moments of presence. And if you can string little moments of presence together, then you have a life of presence. Because I think flow, in the democratization of it, if we take it out of the realm of peak experiences, is really any experience when you're engaged in your life, mm-hmm. and that can be as simple as looking at it, this beautiful view, and you're not stuck in your head.
0: Yeah, the the fully engaged experience. Yeah. So a hug
1: you know. without an agenda can be flow. Yeah, A hug with an agenda, never flow.
0: I hear you. You know, part of what happened there with Csikszentmihalyi's work, I mean, he was describing this state of being that can result from any number of actions or non-actions, but yes, of course, a lot of people picked it up and then began to confuse the doing with the being. Understandably, though, and very importantly, because what he opened up for a lot of people was that there are some ways of doing that can lead more reliably to this state of being that is flow.
1: Well, that can make it more available, I would say. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that you can't choose to be in flow. Right. Right. Like an athlete can't choose when to be in the zone. You know, you can make yourself available.
0: Right. You can choose to go in that direction intentionally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I often talk about this, you know, as what adventure is. It's choosing to go intentionally in the direction of the unknown. And that is one of the fundamental flow triggers. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's because you can't know what's going to happen, but you can't be so perplexed and bamboozled that you're overwhelmed.
0: That's right. You have to be... Ready or just ready enough. That's
1: why they call it a zone.
0: Yeah, the zone. That is the zone. Because it has boundaries. Well, you mentioned this idea of everyday flow. I mean, I get into this too because people sometimes characterize me as like an extreme sports person.
1: Because you do things that in the context of their lives would be extreme. Yeah, Yeah,
0: and to me, they're not. You know, um, although I have come to reflect more and more in recent years that, well, they are. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these things are kind of extreme yeah. and i've been reading kim stanley robinson who just wrote a beautiful book called the high sierra uh-huh and he talks about the non-extremeness mm-hmm. of backpacking in the sierras mm-hmm. as mostly as a very gentle experience yeah. he shares this about his own perception of extreme sports, starting with climbing, because, of course, rainously, mm-hmm. as lots of people were getting into backpacking this the As there were also lots of people getting into climbing in mm-hmm. the Sierras. And he hates the idea of climbing.
1: He's it's like, interesting.
0: He's like, why would you want to risk your life? Yeah. You know, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Why would you need to go to Why do you that, need more? Why would you need to go to that extreme Yeah, to stimulate yourself? Yeah. Right now, some of us do Mm -hmm. is the thing, you know, I mean, I feel like I have needed to go to that extreme, Mm -hmm. but I'm coming to feel more recently the gentler approach.
1: Yeah. Well, I think what you want is to be able to access that at all kinds of levels, right? Right. Because obviously there are people who are drawn to death defying acts because that's the place they feel most alive, Right. right? And the question becomes, can you feel that alive when your life is not at risk, you know, I'm a cyclist. Yeah. Right? And I've ridden bikes thousands and so thousands of So your life is at risk all the time. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I like riding in the city. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I used to say that cycling is my meditation because I tried meditation in my early 30s, mid 30s, and was convinced I couldn't do it, that my mind was too crazy, my life was too busy. But that was sucky to admit at parties. And so when people talked about meditation, I would be like, cycling is my meditation. Right. Right. And because I meet a lot of cyclists and they learn that I'm a meditation teacher, I get to hear that from people. And even if people aren't cyclists, they'll say, gardening is my meditation or running is my meditation. Not to take away the pleasure that any of those activities give people, but it's not. When people say cycling is my meditation, what Mm -hmm. they mean is they have found an activity that more often than not allows them to escape their brain chatter. And because that is a rare experience for most people, they think of that as meditation. Like meditation. Yeah, but really it's just the experience of presence. Yeah. Right? is they're engaged in that activity without trying to be engaged. They're absorbed without trying to be absorbed. Right. And they're not stuck in their heads. And so one of the beautiful things about being a meditator, in my experience, and then leading people along that path to them becoming meditators, is that more of your life becomes more like that. Yeah. Right? Because you're not stuck in your head so much. You can just be at the grocery store looking around as opposed to at your phone.
0: Right. Being the observer. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: You can just be... And so you don't necessarily need to reach for that extreme and experience and it's that question of can you be open to everything that is in this moment no matter what that moment is mm-hmm. kafka has an amazing quote just sit at your desk and listen don't even listen just be and the world will unfold itself around you it has right. no choice yeah it just
0: come streaming in yeah well it's about you know what we are managed to integrate from yeah these experiences isn't it i mean whether it's rock yeah. climbing or yeah. meditating.
1: Well, can the aperture remain open when the situation of the moment doesn't demand that it be open?
0: Mm, yeah, well put. Well put. Since we're talking about meditation, uh-huh. uh, when people ask me about meditation, I do tell them about the Vedic method, mm-hmm. which I learned from this guy, Brad Rader. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? I'm sure you do. And so, in one or two sentences, what is it that makes that method different? What I always say is it's just very simple and very effective.
1: So if I was going to explain the difference between Vedic meditation and what most people think of as meditation, I think first we have to define what that is. Most people think meditation is some activity in which you try to cultivate greater focus, powers of concentration. You try to have nicer thoughts as opposed to the crappy thoughts that are normally running through your brain. And so you're in some ways trying to control or curate your consciousness.
0: So it's a try that's the issue yeah. here. And so, <laughs>
1: and I think that in Vedic meditation, or as I have now come to call it, more flow meditation, what you do is you learn how to get out of the way. You learn how to allow something to unfold. Um, and it's a way of being in meditation, not a way of doing meditation, Yeah. right? And so the, the interesting thing about that is that, You know, when the Beatles learned to meditate, they didn't write the song, Let It Go. They wrote the song, Let It Be. Let It Be, right. Right? And there's a really interesting sort of subtle distinction there.
0: Nor did they write the song, Try to Quiet Your Mind. Yeah,
1: exactly. When you have a meditation practice that's predicated on the very sort of common teaching of acknowledge thoughts and let them go, go implies gone, right? It's implicit in that word. When you instead base a practice around the idea of let thoughts flow or let things be, that means you have to be open to them being there, maybe the entire session. Yeah. And I'm having one of those days where I'm maybe riled up by life and the thoughts just keep coming. Meditation gets very frustrating and people tell me all the time, like, Mm -hmm. I'm too stressed to meditate. Because they know that they're not going to have an experience that in any way resembles what they think of as meditation. So it's really it's a pretty radical degree of allowing, yeah, which is what distinguishes it from what most people think of as meditation.
0: Thanks. That's helpful.
1: Or maybe intriguing. They'll be like, what do you mean by that? Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I'll just repeat what I tell people, too, which is that it's simple and effective. Related to that is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is intuition. The subtle inner voice, yeah, the voice of the subconscious, uh-huh. also the voice of the body. People often report that meditation, for example, has allowed them to get yeah opens t-
1: you up to it a little bit more.
0: exactly, I think that's true, you know, my connection with intuition really began with athleticism,
1: mm-hmm. um
0: and that makes sense too, because yeah. it is the body thinking, yeah, um embodied consciousness, mm-hmm. um, lots of ways to describe it. So what's the connection for you there? And what's your relationship with your inner voice?
1: So first, I think that although it makes sense for a lot of people, I think it somewhat slants it to think of it as a voice. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times people hear it as a voice and it can come as a voice. It can really just come as a knowing. Yeah, good point. Right? And I think that when people say that makes sense, well, what sense does it make? Does it make hearing? Mm -hmm. Does it make touch? Does it make sight?
0: Yeah, feels right.
1: There's a concept that arises out of the Vedas, and I'm sure other spiritual disciplines, wisdom traditions, of a sort of coalescing of the five senses into a greater knowing. Yeah. A sixth sense, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. And so I think that when people say something makes sense, they mean it clicks, it resonates, and it satisfies that sort of standard.
0: Yes. There's, there's a sense of satisfaction yeah. is definitely yeah. part and of so, it. And yeah. you just
1: know, and sometimes it arises as a voice, but it's that sort of deeper knowing or a non-rational basis for knowledge.
0: Yeah. Another way of describing it is knowing without knowing how or why you know. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was and still is Mm -hmm. often physicality and athletic pursuits, particularly in the outdoors, that really connected me initially and continue to open me more to Mm -hmm. my intuition or my sort of subtle knowing. Mm -hmm. Is there a relationship there for you with your meditation practice?
1: Yes, I definitely have often sat in meditation and some amazing insight into life has come to me. And Mm -hmm. I stop meditating and I write it down and then I go back to meditating. Yeah, I differ with some of my colleagues on that. They're like, no, don't interrupt the session. And I'm like, Mm. well, because I think what meditation can do and what being outside can do and what taking a shower can do, you know, is make you available to that layer of consciousness from which creativity and insight flow, Yes, right? Like before I was a meditation teacher, I was a creative director. Right. In advertising. And when you look at the creative process and you can break it down into all kinds of layers, but for the purpose of this conversation, we'll just break it down into three, Mm -hmm. right? There's the sort of assignment phase where you get the brief, Mm -hmm. you get the parameters, you know, you understand a little bit about the client, you do some research, you read the brochures, you go on the website, right? Mm -hmm. That's like fact gathering. And then there's a period in which you sort of have to stop thinking about the problem to be available to the solution. And it's why ad agencies have more ping-pong tables and pool tables than insurance firms because mm-hmm. creativity is not a, a spreadsheet. You yeah. can't grind away on great ideas. You have to, whether you're a creative director working on a yeah. concept or Archimedes in his tub.
0: It's a kind of a universal truth about the subconscious that you can only go towards it indirectly.
1: Indirectly. And so this principle is why not a single person on this planet says, I think of my best ideas when I am trying to think of them, Yeah. right? And so Mm. that deeper knowing, that path through which insight flows, has to be indirect. And actually, indirect doing, like Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of basketball history, but he doesn't Mm. aim at the basket. Mm. He shoots it that way-ish, kind of, right? Because he knows if he intends too intently, he's going to miss.
0: Is this something that he has said?
1: No, but anyone who's good like you don't aim, you shoot. Yeah. Without thinking. Right. And so like Zen archery is about the art of allowing the string to release without releasing it. You know, yes, it's like yes. th- that 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 mm-hmm. intention is important, but it can only take you to a place yeah. from which you can let go of intention. But as much as I talked about it not being a voice, sometimes I think you do experience it as a voice. You know, when I went on teacher training, I was in India for four months. At that point, we had adopted our first child, Logan. who was about four and a half years old. And we were kind of thinking about adopting a second child. And so our profile letter was with the agencies. And while in India, halfway through the program, we got a call to adopt another baby. Mm-hmm. And it would have required me to end the teacher training program. Mm-hmm. And so through a series of very sketchy phone calls because of bad cell reception, my wife and I went through this process of like, You know, should we do this? And I said at some point, does it feel like our baby? And she said, no. And so we passed. And then we withdrew our letter from consideration. But then I came back, completed my training, and we restarted the adoption process. I had a pretty busy teaching calendar. But then I had a week and a half where nothing was going on. So I decided to take a bike ride from the Mm -hmm. Presidio across and do a few headlands loops, which I love. And I had missed it in India. And I got to the top of one of my loops, and I was very, very hungry. And with every fiber of my being, I wanted to go to the Rafa Cycle Cafe, which had opened in Cow Hollow. Right. And so I'm about to go head down the hill to go to the Rafa Cycle Cafe. And this voice goes, go to Sausalito. And I think because I'd been meditating a lot, that opens the channel to where you can hear that voice and maybe even honor it. somewhat. Like, yeah. Okay, Sausalito. So I ran down the hill. I go to Chibo on Bridgeway, which is now Equator Coffee. And I lay my bike against a thing. And there's a woman there, uh, African-American woman with a boy about two to three years old, and then her friend. And the boy had beautiful dreads. And both my kids are African-American. And Logan had had dreads, but they smelled really bad. And so we shaved them off, but we are going to start again. Mm-hmm. And so I walked up to her and I said, hi, this might be a weird question, but..." Um, what product do you use in your son's hair? Right. Because I have an African-American child and we're thinking about dreading his hair again. And she goes, I know you. Well, I don't know you, but I saw you. She goes, two weeks ago, you were at the Larkspur taco truck night. Mm -hmm. And so I start talking to her a little bit and I talk to her son, Jeremiah, and she starts saying, oh, you know, you seem to be good with kids. And I'm like, I have a son, you know. And so we're talking a little bit back and forth and then I'm very hungry. And so I say, well, thanks very much. And I'm going to go get some food. So I walk inside and I get my food and I'm looking at the little tray and this very powerful voice says, go talk to them. And I have this idea in my head. I'm like, well, you were already talking to him. You're already kind of a pushy person, but you know, all right, go talk to them. So I walk back outside. And now we start talking about adoption specifically and talking about the agency we did and how we did open adoption. And she's sitting down and she's kind of heavy set. And she looks at me and says, well, you know, I'm eight months pregnant and thinking of placing the baby for adoption. And we were all like, oh. Yeah. That's how Joshua came into her life. We gave her the name of our adoption agency. She requested her profile letter. And a month later, Joshua was born. Yeah,
0: I had a feeling that's where your story was going. Yeah. yeah.
1: And what's interesting about it is that she had said after the birth, you know, when I saw you in Larkspry, I knew that's the family I want to place the baby with. But like, But how do you break that ice? Hey, I see you got a black kid. You want another one? I can right. hook that up totally. for you. yeah. So, the, yeah, there was like
0: a practical sort of connection in a way. Yeah. But you also had a strong intuition. Yeah, go you to Susalito. Right, Go right. talk to them, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And just to close on the subject of intuition, there are many ways that people describe it. I said subtle voice and inner voice. Of course, not always a voice. And most often for me, it comes as words, as a phrase, because of course our minds are organized around yeah. language.
1: Yeah, and we're both writers, and so yeah. Right, yeah,
0: exactly. Well, you just brought in your experience with your children and the fact that you have two adopted sons. And so, of course, that brings me to your experience as a father, as someone who's interested in masculinity and who has chosen to not become a father. this is a topic that's been really on my mind. I'm just interested in Mm -hmm. talking to men about this. And so I'd love to hear a bit about your experience and how you came to make the decision to become a father in the way that you did.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, I did not have a good relationship with my father. My father was an alcoholic. He wasn't there for me. My parents had this weird relationship where they kind of picked favorites. And I think my dad picked my brother Mm -hmm. and my mom Mm -hmm. picked me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we kind of grew up that way. wasn't until my dad turned 46, he got sober. And Mm -hmm. that allowed us to begin to have a relationship again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I wrote him a letter once. I said, why'd you become an alcoholic? Mm -hmm. And he wrote me back. I just sent that one question as a letter and he wrote me back and he told me this long story about how he started with alcohol and what it meant to him and the path, the slippery slope into just sort of like thinking you're a total loser and so might as well get drunk.
0: Yeah, powerful question.
1: And so for most of my life, I felt the absence of a father mm-hmm. and would tear up when I saw movies and saw like father-son scenes and things like that and mm-hmm. just was so aware of what I missed. I don't know if consciously I can point to that experience of lack as the reason why I always felt I wanted to be a father. I do know that I didn't get married until later in life at 42. And then my wife and I tried to have kids and couldn't. Yeah, And so I really had to face the idea that maybe I won't be married. Maybe I won't have kids. I knew I wanted to.
0: So you did know, as you just said, you knew that you wanted to. I knew I wanted to. You felt clear about
1: that. Yeah, I felt clear about that. But then going into adoption, you know, there's a lot of ways to become a dad. It can be an accidental process. Sure. When you start getting into in vitro fertilization and trying those things, then it becomes a much more intentional process. Yeah. And when you take the next step towards adoption, it's the most intentional.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Certainly my experience was that I felt like I was open to it for most of my life, in my 20s and 30s and even it's my 40s. I was open to it, but I was certainly not pursuing it intentionally. Yeah as the years went by, began to serve as evidence to me, you know, observing myself yeah. that it was not really a very high priority mm-hmm. for me. That even though I have still a lot of feelings about fatherhood and what I miss yeah. by not being a father, and I'm very conscious of that, it has not been a priority for me yeah, as evidenced by my actions.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. and And... For you, on the other hand, you ended up with the most
1: intentional
0: pursuit (laughs) of fatherhood Uh possible, as you just said, by way of adoption. Uh, So, yeah. yeah.
1: And then you become a father and then you're like, oh, shit. What have I done? What have I done? (laughs) It is impossible to prepare for.
0: Yeah.
1: Impossible.
0: What comes to mind for me is that there are so many junctures in life. There are so mm-hmm. many possible paths yeah. for each one of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every time we go left or right, and especially when it's something as significant as choosing to become a parent yeah. or not, our life path diverges permanently. Yeah, And we no longer have access to whatever the yeah. rest of the other yeah. paths are. We only get to be one person, one life. It's beautiful and also kind of tragic. There's a loss there. There's a loss there.
1: I think acknowledging that loss is really important too. In some of your writing, I think you've been really candid about that. Like Mm -hmm. that you didn't feel drawn to be a father strongly enough to be a father, but you're honest about what you've lost as a consequence. Yeah. Right? So often people are unwilling to really admit to what has been lost by the choices they've made. And I think it's really important.
0: Thank you. I agree. It's something that I've been practicing. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just with the loss of fatherhood, let's say, but in other ways. And that practice has been fruitful. Yeah. And it's also true that I'm still often struck by the pain, the yeah. grief of not being able to live all the other lives yeah, yeah. that I would like to well, be you able have to it. live. Isn't that the
1: thing about travel? Like travel <laughs> is amazing But if you have great travel experiences, you A want to go back to the same place again. And then you want to go to other places and you can't do both. That's right. You know, when I was in my thirties, I met this really, really interesting old guy and he had had such an interesting life. And he said, you know, here's the thing. Every year I would decide to give up something I loved for a year to try something new for a year. Yeah. Or six months. He says, Because if you're engaged in your life, your life fills up. Yeah. And it is so easy to sort of lean back on habit and comfort. And he yeah. says, how do you actually know that you love the things you love unless you are willing to let them go for a while? And that is a really powerful teaching.
0: Absolutely, yeah. As strange as it may seem you know, to some, I would say that I have loved giving up some of the things that I have loved. Yeah. I really would say the same thing about alcohol. I love Red wine and mezcal, I don't drink them anymore.
1: Yeah. yeah, I like that that was one of your questions, like, do you drink alcohol? My wife and I, when we go out, we still like to have a cocktail. I like the flavors. Yeah. What's really fascinating is that I no longer like being buzzed, whereas buzz used to make me feel more alive. Now it feels dull. Yeah. And I think that has to be as a consequence of doing lots of meditation where everything seems more alive naturally, Right. right? So we rarely drink almost never in the last several years have i ever had more than one drink at an occasion we drink way 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 less but we still like it a little bit
0: yeah two things one is i would have said the same thing until fairly recently that is that you know i stopped drinking but i still once in a while would enjoy a drink and then at some point this year, I found myself thinking about that process and how, for one thing, just how complicated it is to explain to people. They're like, oh, yeah. well, do you not drink? Or, do you, you know, it's like, yeah, well, exactly. you know, sometimes it just depends on how I feel. And it's like, well, no, but rarely, it's really very rarely and whatever. And yeah. so sort I of thought, well, you know what? I'm just not going to for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, like really not at all Yeah, for a while, even though, again, it's been incredibly rare that I did ever have a drink anyway. Yeah. And so now it's easier to explain, because I can just say, well, yeah, I just I don't drink. Do- yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Not that it fucking matters what anyone else thinks uh-huh. or knows about my own
1: process. Yeah. But
0: w- what that gets to, though, is the difference between the freedom to choose and the freedom of not having to choose.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Distinction. Yeah. Uh,
0: which comes into play when we renounce something consciously. Yeah.
1: Because every choice requires a little bit of energy. Right. Cognitive energy.
0: And so when... When we move away from something, when we choose to close the chapter on something, say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. I'm done with that. I'm going to make space for something else. Mm-hmm. We know we have a different kind of freedom. Yeah. It's not the freedom to choose at any moment, it's the freedom to not have to choose.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. In a very different setting, I had that experience when I moved to San Francisco to take the last full time job I think I'll ever have, like working for someone. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work out. And so I left after a year. And I said to myself, I'm never going to take another full-time job, which is a way of closing a door. I'm just going to freelance. And then, of course, a week later, I get a call from someone saying, hey, they're looking for a creative director for an agency in like, you know, Sioux City, Iowa or you know, Des Moines, somewhere, right? And normally, the correct response for a freelance creative director in that situation is like, Wow, what an intriguing opportunity. And so instead of playing that game, I said, you know what, to be honest with you, I'm not interested, but if you tell me more, I can maybe help you find someone. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I put that phone down and I felt great. Yeah. I felt great about that. Two months after that, I was cleaning one of my bicycles and the idea popped in my head said, you should be a meditation teacher. Wow. And I'm like, that's absurd. Like, that makes no sense. I just laughed out loud at the absurdity of it. And I went and told my wife and she's like, that's funny. The idea kind of kept, you know... Around the fringes of my awareness, and finally, I reached out to this guy and said, hey, "Have you been getting these weird ideas about being a teacher?" He goes, "Yeah, I've been waiting for your call. You're about six months late from my account." There you
0: go, right? And I was like, "Oh, well, the guru always knows." First, yeah. right? <laughs> I was like, "Oh, very interesting." So again, another that inner voice, yeah. inner knowing.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think it came as a consequence of closing that door, because I think when you close that door, you open another one.
0: Yeah, yeah. There or you go. there's a
1: door opens, you might not be aware of it yet. You know, what this leads me
0: to is another subject that I've been thinking about lately that I've learned a lot about in these conversations, and that is discipline. Ah. Discipline, determination, commitment, mm-hmm. you know, drive. There's a, lots of pseudosynonyms for discipline. And, you know, my relationship with the D word yeah. <laughs> with discipline was a, a, of total alienation for most of my life. I mean, growing up here in San Francisco, the way I grew up, we we were just like (laughs) anti-everything. Seriously.
1: You were positively negative about things.
0: Anti-everything. It had a lot to do with the kind of punk ethos. Mm -hmm. But punk is not intrinsically negative. There was definitely an anti-authoritarian, kind of anti-standard life attitude, but there was a negativity that came from my own life and from how Uh I grew up. And so the whole idea of dedicating oneself to something, to anything, uh-huh. was both foreign to me and something that I really actively
1: pushed away pushed
0: away, and, and uh-huh. turned away from. And, and so I didn't have any practice with it either. And yet, as we've just been talking about making choices, for example, closing chapters uh-huh. consciously, choosing to no longer do certain activities, uh-huh. choosing to no longer drink alcohol, you know, th- those are definitely forms of discipline. And so I have come to have some experience with it more recently, and I've also come to think about it a little more differently. And I feel like a door is opening there for Mm me.
1: Well, I would say if you think about discipline differently, you can see that you were actually very disciplined in that early phase of your life. The root of discipline is disciple. Mm, Yes. Right. And so to be a disciple, means to hold certain personages, certain ideas, certain values in reverence. And so the question really isn't like, how disciplined are you? Meaning how much willpower do you have? How much determination? The bigger question is, what are you a disciple to?
0: Yeah, what are your values?
1: And so you were very disciplined in the value of rejecting authority and rejecting structure. And re- you yeah. were very disciplined. That's true. People are obsessed with their to-do list, And I'm like, what's in your to-be list? How do you want to be? What do you value? And I think that if you can align your actions with those values that you're in a disciple relationship to, yeah, then the discipline actually doesn't require willpower so much.
0: I hear you, yes, and this gets back to doing versus being. Uh-huh. And certainly in early life, I never had any sort of guidance in yeah. the idea of being. There was no introduction to philosophy either as a general thing, yeah, yeah. as an academic thing, or as a personal thing, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't really develop a personal philosophy that is a way of living Mm -hmm. until my 40s. And that's when I began to have something to be a disciple to. Uh And so that's when. You
1: mean in an intentional way? Yes, intentionally
0: Uh and also kind of just within myself, you know, feeling like, okay, these are ways that I want to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could say, yes, disciplined in some ways Mm -hmm. uh, and, and perhaps more and more just to bring this in, another reason that I rejected discipline was because it felt like this kind of macho version of masculine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Right.
0: Like if I just put my nose to the grindstone and, yeah. you know, work, 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 no pain,
1: no gain. So, yeah, yeah. All exactly. this sort yeah.
0: of stuff, you mm-hmm. know, just put your back into it, you know, that you can be whatever you want to be in yeah, yeah. all this kind of bullshit. Yeah. Right. And I was like, fuck that, that sounds like a lie, Yeah, you know. It sounds like <laughs> it
1: hype, yeah. Just
0: rings false, yeah. I'm not buying it. And I also somehow had a sense of, you know, that's not the kind of person and not the kind of man that I want to be. I want to be, yeah. Even from a very early age. Uh-huh. And so this redefinition of discipline to me, whether, as you put it, being a disciple, Mm-hmm. Of something, or as my friend T. Callahan, who I interviewed
1: mm-hmm.
0: a few episodes ago, puts it, as really just like the accumulation of what you do, yeah, and what you have done. It's kind of like observing yourself in the wild, mm-hmm. and you know, it kind of ends up if there's something that you do a lot, yeah. Well, you're a disciple of that, yeah, exactly. You know, maybe not consciously. Yeah, and- you
1: might think that you value time with your kids, but if you don't spend time with your kids then that's not true
0: exactly right and if you perhaps don't think about it much at all but you're yeah. the kind of person that does spend a ton of time with your kids well then yeah you are disciplined about that so just then to close on the subject of discipline and then mm-hmm. we'll, i think we got one more little island to hop to okay <laughs> so for you then what's your relationship with discipline? People often think meditation as something that you have to be disciplined about.
1: The only reason meditation wor- ever worked for me, because there are phases in my life where it didn't work, is I found something that I enjoy doing. I never felt like, oh, I have to do this. I'm like, oh, I want to do this. I get to do this. And so it was easy for me to mm-hmm. do it every day. In fact, when I became a teacher, I just assumed because I was an egomaniac that everyone was like me and that I didn't really have to emphasize like consistency and regularity and give people practical tips and tricks to you know, yeah. but now that's a big part of my teaching, how to get people to sort of overcome the hurdles that we place in our day to find time to practice. And so that's a much bigger part of how I teach now, Yeah. because it only works if you do it, right. right? If I can answer your question in sort of the broader context you're asking it now, without that reframing ahead, is that there's an inertial quality that sometimes requires us to overcome, right? Like, Binge-watching TV. I mean, I'm very attracted to my wife. have been married for 20 years now. But, you know, if we would be sitting on the couch watching some show in which people are having hot sex, and so you're sitting next to this person, and so the question arises, should we have hot sex? Right. Or should we watch another episode? Yeah. And you're like, let's watch another episode. There are inertial barriers that stand in between you and the person that you actually want to be, and that can require a conscious application of intention. Right? Yeah, and I yeah. think that that probably fits the
0: the classic definition of discipline.
1: Yeah, classic definition. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think that is helpful to point out. And you know, that was part of what I was alienated from and did not have any practice with.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right? No one really taught me. You had to do those things. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, you know, I think it was part of my, I mean, really very deep frustration and anger mm-hmm. that I hadn't seen the fruit of any sort of discipline or dedication. I didn't know what it felt like mm-hmm. to get the wheel turning in a new direction. Yeah. Really. I wouldn't say not at all, but not enough. Mm-hmm. Not enough. And so, again, I just kind of rejected the whole concept for a mm-hmm. long time. And it caused me to turn away from a lot of things in certain ways in my mm-hmm. life. Yeah. And so I do think there's a lot of value, actually, to recognizing, as you just said, that there's an inertia to our present state of being. Mm-hmm. And to change course does require some work as some intention.
1: I'm not a Christian, but when you look at the seven deadly sins you would originally think, why is sloth on there? Because it's like, what can sloth do? All these others seem much more active and destructive and forceful, but sloth is contentment, actually, comfort. I'm reading a book right now called The Comfort Crisis. It's a really interesting book about, yeah, we naturally seek comfort, but too much comfort kills you. and yeah. makes your life suck.
0: Well, it has been interesting yet yeah, to start to develop a relationship with discipline mm-hmm. in a different way. And I do find myself at this point Very disciplined, even though it's still foreign to me to say that about my writing.
1: Yeah, what's the next island?
0: The next island, yeah. Well, what came in there a little bit while we're talking about discipline is masculinity, the nature of what it means to be a man.
1: It's an interesting question. So for me personally, right, I never felt like a guy's guy, ever. Like I was shorter, younger than everyone in my class. Um, I went to school early. They wanted to put me ahead of grade. My mom was like, dear God, look at him. He's like a minute. And like, no, just give him more to read. Because I never really aligned myself with guys, I learned what being a man meant for me early in life, in my 20s and stuff, was really in the context of my relationships with women. Yeah. You know, and I remember there was a moment where that really sort of shifted into that direction, where I was in college. I was 17. And this woman in a class that I was in uh, asked me if I would walk her home from class. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for, college girls, right? And then about a block in, I realized like, oh, she just didn't want to walk home alone. And I'm the least threatening guy in class. And it opened a window of understanding that being a woman was really different than being a guy. Mm -hmm. And so I started really watching women. Mm-hmm. I watched women in social situations. I watched how they deflected and encouraged attention mm-hmm. from guys they wanted or didn't want. Yeah. And so for a long time, and because I liked having sex with women, I could use my knowledge of how women operated and my natural sort of funny personality to sleep with women. And I then early on felt that my manliness was predicated on my ability to bed and pleasure women. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. But in a sneaky way, because the first woman I ever slept with was the girlfriend of the stud of our high school water polo team. And he would have kicked my ass if he'd found out. And so, for a long time, my idea of what it meant to be a man was really, yeah, in the context of my relationship with the women. Yeah. It was about 10 years ago where I started to realize that in my life, I've had two types of male friends. Very distinct types. And they've almost never been combined. One was a friend I did things with boogie boarding, rafting, hiking, going out, you know, drinking, you know, socializing, and then I had friends I talked to. And they were very rarely the same person.
0: Mm.
1: And I started to start to realize that whenever I would hear about men's groups and men's work, I felt this repulsion. And it wasn't until 10 years ago that I started to realize the fact that you're re- repelling this means that there's something there. There's something there. there for you, right? Yeah. And um and so I've been interested in moving in that direction. I honestly feel much, much more at ease in mixed company or with women than I do with men. Still? Yeah, still.
0: Yeah, interesting. I haven't
1: really done a lot of men's work. I mean, I have the excuse of being like a dad and a husband and business and all that stuff. You know, The more I talk about it, like mm-hmm. even bringing it up with you when I saw the question on your list, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is another reminder that there's an area that you still need to explore.
0: Interesting, thanks for sharing your bit of your experience historically, and I would say mine was pretty similar, and hear that for lots of men that is we grew up defining our masculinity in relation to women, yeah, that is at least for heterosexual guys. yeah, right. Um, and the same is true for me. Mm-hmm. I had male friends that I would yes do things with. Mm -hmm. And really none of the second type that you mentioned, you know, guys that I would talk to, not really. It sounds like you've become aware more recently of a desire to form or deepen your relationships with other men. And you brought up the concept of men's work and this Uh sort of thing. You know, I have done some of this stuff. And I would say, yeah, that's a way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, like, this is a way to do it. Yeah. You know, and so for me, really... I did have a similar realization also going back about 10 years. I started to become aware that my relationships with other men were missing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't really think of it in terms of my own, quote, masculinity. Uh uh, But as I began to intentionally develop deeper relationships with other Mm -hmm. men, with friends Mm -hmm. and other people, um, I did find that. It affected my sense of masculine identity. Yeah. Really mostly just in that it was no longer only in relation to women. Yeah. You know, and that my identity had another mirror to reflect off of. Yeah. And then as far as what it means to be a man or not a man, on one hand, I think there are lots of differences. And on the other hand, I think we're all capable of yeah. of everything. So, yeah, you know... <laughs>
1: I have started to think about it, probably a little late, about one idea about what it means to be a man is like, what kind of example do I set for my children?
0: Which, of course, right? also applies to women.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And what sort, you know, what sort yeah. of example do I set for my kids? And it's yes. pretty funny because yes. kids are brutal. Like my 11-year-old, we are standing in the bathroom. I think he took a bath and I had taken a shower, so we are both naked. And he goes, Dad. And he's presenting this knowledge, not out of meanness, just out of just the pure desire to share information. He says, Dad, these are the three flabbiest parts of your body. <laughs> Let me enumerate them. And he goes, like your butt. He goes, push on your butt. See, it's mm. gushy. Push on my butt. My butt's firm. <laughs> like, and, your belly. and I'm like, gushy. gushy. And my <laughs> 16-year-old, I mean, we went on a run when he was about 14. And he kicked my ass and he yeah. was not gracious about it. He changed the name and his phone to Thick Daddy. So he's like, Siri, call Thick Daddy. Yeah. And I started thinking, so obviously, you know, as you get older, your body starts to require more maintenance to stay in shape and it starts to fall apart. It starts to get more gushy. But yeah, more gushy. But physicality is just one dimension of, you know, masculinity. It's one that our culture hypes a lot. But it's the other, like, you know, openness, generosity. So you're like, And so I start being aware of like, well... I've never thought of myself as a manly man. I played rugby for 16 years. I played in college. Right. And I played in club teams. So, and I've been around a lot of guys. But I always felt outside the group. Yeah. I wonder if my life will lead me in a direction where I do feel more part of that group. Mm. Um, that possibility seems to be opening up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Even this conversation is a little nudge in that direction. Mm. And so it'll be interesting to see where that goes.
0: What comes to mind is your. Relating that story is that, um, yes, I used to also feel kind of more alienated from other guys in a way. I have come to feel more connected with other men,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like I said, by consciously working to create and deepen relationships with other guys. And my sense of what it means to be a man has become more concrete as my own identity has become. Yeah. more concrete. Yeah. Really the best definition that I've heard lately of masculinity or what it means to be a man comes from this British artist, Grayson Perry, who's mm-hmm. just a genius, like hmm. really interesting cat. Look him up on YouTube, for example, which is that masculinity is whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And also simply the energy that you embody as a male person.
1: That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, that you authentically embody, right? Because there's definitely this idea of a mask or a shell or a way of wearing masculinity. One of the the sort of interesting things I did with one of my friends, we did the AIDS ride. And part of doing the AIDS ride is you go on these training rides. And I remember there was this guy who was the leader of our training ride. And he was like, just talking like this. And afterwards, we might go get some coffee and da-da-da, you know, and... I realized this is very stereotypical. This was his actual voice. And then a truck cut us off. And in the middle of a sentence, he goes, my mother fucked Wow. Well, and he just, this booming voice came out. And then the car, the driver looked up and flipped us off, but didn't run into us. Hmm. And, and then he looked at me, and goes, that's my big, bad butch voice.
0: <laughs> Funny.
1: And I just thought, like, that's a great example of thinking that masculinity is a mask, like is a certain way of presenting yourself
0: and that we all have multiple masculinities plural and that both were authentic for him.
1: What we're all we all have an opportunity to come to as we get older is well what is your authentic way of being in the world as a man? Yeah. Right? And the answer there is masculinity is a very personal thing. That's exactly. You know? Yeah, there and there's no one answer. Right. Um right. And it's when we let go of the desire to sort of fill out a certain costume. Yeah right? Then we can really find what it means to be a man for us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well put. That's exactly it. You know, a search for some sort of exterior definition of, quote, masculinity is mostly a false search. Yeah. It's about um, becoming the person that you are.
1: Yeah. Well, the fascinating thing for me about this question is that, like, now kids are growing up in this gender fluid world, Mm -hmm. right? You know, my... Youngest son, Joshua, at school wants to be called Coco, Hmm. right? And he's kind of trying that out Mm -hmm. or she's trying that out at school. I was talking to some of my gay friends is like there's this possibility that there's an entire generation of kids growing up that will never have been closeted. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, my God, like never have to come out. Yeah. Right. They'll see that thrift store on Polk out of the closet, and be like, "Well, that's dumb. I know where their clothes come from." Right. You know, they right, wouldn't right. know at all what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. maybe then that question of even masculinity starts to sort of slip away. It's just sort of personality. Yeah. Like, like person. Like personhood. Who are you as a person?
0: Exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, well I think it is opening up in huge ways, and a lot of the walls around femininity and femininity and these categories are becoming less interesting, really.
1: Yeah. We get less interested in the poles and more about the current that flows in between.
0: Yeah, totally. Great. We're getting to the point where it's time to land the ship. I do want to ask what you're working on these days.
1: I'm writing a book that's essentially an assemblage of some of the posts I do on a weekly basis, but trying to find a way of presenting them in a coherent frame. Yeah, And so that seems like a natural first step. And then that yeah. leads then to a another book that's more of a memoir slash instructional book. Mm,
0: so beautiful.
1: Mostly, I guess if I say when I'm working now, I'm excited to be working on a way of structuring my life that allows me to do those things that I know are important to me. Yeah. And then the next love is it. figuring out where to live a couple of years from now. Right. What kind of life we want to lead? Because mm. neither my wife and I love San Francisco. Mm. We like it, but we don't love it. And so it's not going to be our forever home. Mm-hmm. or our... So we're starting to think about, like, where do we want to live and what kind of life do we want to lead? And I want to live more in nature a little bit I like LA better than San Francisco um, for all kinds of reasons.
0: You've said in the same paragraph that you'd like to live more in nature and that also you love Los Angeles. And the two just seemed like inherently contradictory to me. But
1: From where I lived, I was as close to the beach as I live now. I was as close to the Santa Monica Mountains as I am to Marin. Mm-hmm. Santa Monica Mountains are beautiful for hiking. There's a lot of nature in LA.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... I know a lot of people love L.A., but as a native San Franciscan, that just sounds completely insane to me.
1: You know, when I first moved here in the 90s, I wrote to The Guardian and said, would you like the perspective of someone who's not in love with your shining jewel of a city by the bay? I'll write a column for you called L.A. Guy. And they said no. And they said no. (laughs) Exactly. I love it.
0: (laughs) That's perfect. Well, James, it's been such a pleasure
1: it has been it's nice
0: yeah real pleasure and you know again i am struck with how doing this is such a beautiful opportunity to get to know people more deeply and so thank you i really appreciate
1: it no thank you we are men men we shall remain we shall
0: That was a little snippet of Dan Reeder and I Drink Beer. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please have a look at the questions that I've posed at the bottom of the podcast page and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. Love to hear from you. You can subscribe, like, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of this page at decidenothing.substack.com where all of my writing and audio lives. Of course, you can also reach me by email or on social media. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon.